0: the quantum mechanics
1: yes we are the quantum mechanics the podcast that tinkers under the hood of the paranormal and we have decided that we're going to do a irregular returning series on some of the most famous people that have taken the view i guess that we have which is trying to prove either way that something uh, is paranormal is happening or is not happening and we are going to kick that off today with a great subject and I think Peter you're going to introduce it.
0: Yeah definitely. Um, I think I think it's a good way to describe it. partly this I guess was driven um, for me at least from the great interview uh, that we did with Christopher Joseph on Jeff the Talking Mongoose because I think we touched on a number of themes there, but I think what it what it proved was there was a certain period towards uh, the late 1800s to kind of, I guess, the mid-1900s where the paranormal, spiritualism, psychics, it was kind of a heyday, and there was so much of it happening for various reasons. Um, so I think the first person I wanted to look at, because I've been quite obsessed with a book that he wrote is the very famous uh magician escapologist performer Paul um, Daniels <laughs> if only if only no we're, we're going a little bit bigger than that I mean not not in terms of stature but in terms of gravitas maybe uh I want to talk about Harry Houdini uh-huh. today um because I've been reading a book that he wrote. Uh, It was published in 1924. It's it's quite a chunky book, and it's called A Magician Among the Spirits. Uh, So, I mean, as a bit of background, uh, which we'll get onto a a bit more in a minute, uh, Houdini became quite obsessed with spiritualism and the paranormal, Uh, and... I would say I think Houdini might disagree with this but certainly came from a position of trying to debunk it that his basic premise that I got from reading his book was uh he comes to the conclusion that medium spiritualism is is a fraud and just a a bunch of of hokum I guess the word is in America. He says he didn't start off that way, but again, we'll talk about it a little bit more in reading the book. I think he had some pretty set ideas, but to give him the benefit of the doubt, let's start off with how Houdini in the book himself uh, introduces his obsession with the paranormal and investigating it. So Houdini says, from my early career as a mystical entertainer, I've been interested in spiritualism as belonging to the category of mysticism. And as a sideline to my own phase of mystery shows, I've associated myself with mediums, joining the rank and file and held seances as an independent medium to fathom the truth of it all. I Houdini famously, so I think Houdini pretty much in the 20s especially, just became completely obsessed with the topic and debunking it. Um he became a member of uh, an organization called the scientific American community who famously offered a cash prize to any medium or spiritualist who could successfully demonstrate supernatural powers. So I can't remember how much, I think it was something like $5,000 they offered to anyone who could come and prove their spiritual paranormal supernatural skills under test conditions. Um, so but, but, let's get into I've said that he became obsessed with it and, and from my reading of the book, I think he became obsessed with it and debunking it for three main reasons. He went to start seeing a lot of these shows which which are, as I was just- del- alluding to were were massive in the late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds big events uh and I think he was driven by seeing elements within those shows that he kind of recognised as classic tricks that a magician or an illusionist would perform and that they were being kind of used in this specific way. He was also driven by the death uh, of his beloved mother. So he talks quite a lot in the book about his, his desire and wanting to contact his departed mother and that if there's any way that she was alive in the spirit world, what a great thing that would be for him so that was another motivator i think also he did uh for a while he did a number of shows posing in his early years at least posing as a medium or a psychic so it actually used some of these techniques to deceive let's say as in his mind the public and i think he felt great guilt about that so i think there's the the general so the three things are the general magician's inquisitive inquisitive nature to work out how a trick is done drove him the need and desire to get in contact with his mother and the fact that he'd used some of these techniques in a deceptive way in his early career and felt guilty about it um i mean one of the bits where he highlights it there's there's a great bit actually where him and a group of friends are talking about the afterlife and they basically put together a bet that if whoever was the first one to die would come back and try and communicate with the others to prove that there was a spiritual world and how it would work. And there's a great account of Houdini's private secretary, a guy called John W. Sargent, Now, Sergeant was on his deathbed, and on his deathbed he made Houdini a promise, and I quote Sergeant here. Houdini, this may be the end. If it is, I am coming back to you no matter what happens on the other side, providing there is a way I can reach you. And if I can come, you will know it, because I'm going to will it. I'm going to will it so strong that it cannot be mistaken. Houdini goes on to say, he died the next day, there was more than th- That was more than three years ago and there has been no sign. I have waited and watched, believing that if any man could ever have sent back word, he would be that man. And I know that our minds were so close to each other that I would have received the signal that my friend wanted to call me. No one could accuse me of being unwilling to receive such a sign because it would have been the greatest enlightenment I could possibly have had in this world. So i read those bits ben really to kind of talk about his motivations of why he maybe got so obsessed with this um and i think what's really interesting about houdini is the fact that he also became friends with a lot of people who were believers in the spiritual world and mediumship um and especially his relationship with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the famous author, uh, I guess most famous for creating and writing about the character Sherlock Holmes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been looking at uh, a biography of Conan Doyle because I knew you were going to do this subject, and it seems like... The two of them did get together with a uh, a shared interest in this um, sort of spiritualist movement, which was very prevalent at the time in the 1920s. And Doyle bought with him um, when you look back at it, it's almost a childlike fascination with the subject so when you look at his very early days and you look at his progression to writing the Sherlock Holmes mysteries he becomes at an early age obsessed with reading uh, novels of the day which are about detectives and unsolved mysteries and he finds that the denouement to those mysteries is very unsatisfying he thinks that the authors not necessarily that they're lazy but that their storytelling isn't what he was expecting all of the uh, criminals that are portrayed always get found out by some kind of mistake or uh, some kind of great coincidence and what it it's clear that he wants more out of it so he starts uh, developing the characters of Holmes and Watson out of a disgruntlement with these books and it is also clear that he is an avid reader from a very early age he's he's reading an awful lot of work and none of it is especially paranormal it's just um mystery work but his background is one where he doesn't particularly get on with his parents. He finds his school oppressive and abrasive and it's clear from the biography uh, and and he writes about how um he wishes that his teachers and his parents would have offered him love and Sucker rather than um, sort of punishment and direction, and that is sort of translates into the way that he writes uh, the Holmes and Watson books. But underneath all of this is his interest in this spiritualist movement, and obviously, like you introduced this piece, like it was something that was really getting um i don't think credibility is the right word but it was getting a lot of traction in the late 1800s early 1900s and he saw houdini as somebody who was taking these sort of um what he saw as paranormal feats to the masses and it appears that that is how their relationship began to be formed. Yeah,
0: I think that's true. I think I, I think that comes out from the Houdini book as well. I mean, we'll get on to more Conan Doyle later and Houdini, but they seem to have such a warm regard for each other. Um, yet, in some ways, they were polar opposite. And I think that I think it it's alluded to in the book that in some ways Conan Doyle. Thought that Houdini had paranormal powers, even though Houdini denied that he did and said no it 's just a trick yeah um and actually it reminds me there's a there's a great quote here um by sir arthur Conan Doyle uh saying to Houdini of why his investigation into the paranormal is not um uh giving the kind of results that Arthur Conan Doyle would expect. So uh, he says, so Houdini says of Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a sincere and confirmed believer in the spirit phenomena, whose acquaintance I esteem, advises me that I do not secure convincing results because I am a sceptic. And I therefore want to make it clear that I am not a scoffer. I firmly believe in a supreme being and that there is a hereafter. So, We'll come on to more of Conan Doyle and uh, Houdini because their relationship is extremely fascinating.
1: Mm.
0: But but let's let's focus again back on Houdini because I think I I mentioned it as an obsession and it really – him debunking the paranormal did become this incredible uh, obsession – as he, One part of the book is a quote that just proves it. He said, During my last trip abroad in 1919, I attended over 100 séances with the sole purpose of honest investigation. These séances were presided over by well-known mediums in France and England. In addition to attending these séances, I have spent a great deal of time conferring with persons predominantly identified with spiritualism. So we're talking about a man who goes on a European visit. I don't know if he's doing shows at this point. But during that time there, he attends over 100 seances just to try and work out what's going on and what's what's being done. And he's constantly, as you mentioned, in contact with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who's a firm believer. Um, And I wonder, it's actually, there are kind of parallels, I think, between Sherlock Holmes and Houdini, you could kind of see Sir Arthur Conan Doyle seeing Houdini as like this Sherlock character, you know, totally in control, doing these mysterious things. I mean, quite interesting. So um, I'm not going to go through every story in the book because there's a lot of them, but there is a chapter at the start of the book that talks about the founders of modern spiritualism. So I just want to talk about a couple of examples and cases about people who've probably shaped the way we probably look at this subject or at least how it's portrayed in the public uh, before we get on to that I, I've been thinking a lot about this because the book is literally a book that is there to expose that mediums the paranormal uh, and spiritualism is well it's basically to debunk the whole thing and say there is nothing there and weirdly, as I was reading it, I thought of this analogy of, well, you know, we've come across people's encounters with mediums. I, I think specifically about one of the first ones we did with Nikki's story, mm. where she was in contact with three mediums who, A, didn't take any money from her, B, helped her. And, you know, Nikki had what she would say her problem solved by interactions with the mediums and I was trying to square that with reading the book which is is quite vicious against the whole world of spiritualism and mediums Um, and the analogy I thought of was wrestling weirdly enough (laughs) that you know You've got these high profile wrestlers, you know, I think of that as a Carter Unstoppable Sex Machine song called Is Wrestling Fixed, which is very good. But, you know, the big entertainment money making wrestling, the WWFs, it's kind of choreographed and it's a story and it's a, it's a fantasy world where a narrative and a story is played out. then I was thinking about not so much maybe in UK or Europe but certainly in America I know in colleges and schools and stuff like that wrestling is you know it's not like that it's not people in kind of weird costumes grabbing the mic and shouting each other and hitting chairs over each other's heads or Olympic wrestling so there is a difference and I wonder whether Houdini's book because he was looking at such high profile cases or offering money for people to come and fool him effectively where whether he attracted this group of people who were there exploiting it and exploiting people and using it fraudulently right and uh, you see what i'm saying
1: yeah so so um what you're saying is that because there was such a heightened interest in it um particularly in that early 1900s era and um, I think Chris when we were talking to him about Jeff the Mongoose had a very interesting uh, sort of theory that perhaps there was an interest in it in the press and amongst people at the time because it was an escapism because there was so much terrible stuff happening in the world that there were people who capitalized on that and then maybe behind that behind those um showmen because you can say that um houdini is a showman and there were other show people who were uh sort of making the uh, making a spectacle of their supposed powers that behind that was uh reality and uh, you mentioned there that our nikki story and the first because of because um, our goal with this podcast has always been to take a middle ground and to try and find out what's going on. That was uh, the series, it was a two-part series, where we tried to find out whether there was any reality behind what those psychics were telling Nikki. And it turns out there really was a very strong reality behind what, they were told but they they're not performers they didn't take Mm. any money they weren't um promoting themselves in any way and maybe that's the difference
0: yeah yeah I think the other thing and I'm going to get on to what um Houdini describes as the kind of modern kind of founders of the of the modern spiritualism uh The Fox sisters I'm going to talk about them in a second but I think their story the Fox sisters reminds me of something again which uh, Christopher said when we were doing the Jeff the Mongoose tale about the pressure on the family to kind of perform and to give results and I think there are parallels with As I said, what Houdini describes as the kind of one of the key figures in modern spiritualism, the Fox sisters. So let me just give you a little background on the Fox sisters. Um, There were three sisters. They lived in Hydesville, New York, with their parents. Their house had uh, had a reputation for being haunted. And when the two youngest sisters were 10 and 14, strange knocking sounds were heard in the house. Parents, friends, all their neighbours were basically convinced this was connected to spirits and the fact that the house was haunted Um, and that somehow these spirits were channelling themselves through the two young daughters. So I've been so worried with the family about this that they separated the two youngest daughters and made them live with different relatives in different parts of the country for a period. But weirdly, the strange phenomena seemed to follow them. The girls came famous and in November 1849 they gave a demonstration of the strange rapping sounds at the Corinthian Hall in Rochester. So basically these two girls, it said, were the ones who basically invented the convention of, you know, knock once for yes, knock twice for no. Right, yeah. Th- that this came from the Fox sisters, that kind of concept. So they there was an event held in 1849 in Rochester And interestingly, uh, this is credited, at least by Houdini in the book, that this was the first demonstration of spiritualism to take part in front of a paying audience, which I think is a key figure. From then on in, the sisters kind of built a career giving paid public demonstrations of their paranormal abilities. Uh, One of the sisters continued as a medium until the late 1800s. Uh, and of, of at that time houdini describes her he says for 30 years she wandered from place to place holding seances for 30 years she suffered the torture of remorse and in ill health she believed she was being driven into hell she loathed the thing she was and tried to, at times to drown her troubles in wine for 30 years she lived in constant fear of her older sister then Margaret Kane, who was originally called Margaret Fox, found a temporary solace in the Catholic Church. But there were still more months of struggle before she finally found the courage to tell the story of the world-famous wrappings in a signed confession given to the press in October 1888. So she gave this confession to a newspaper called The New York World. It was on October the 21st, 1888. It's quite a long confession, um, but I've kind of tried to distill it down into a kind of shorter period. But I think it touches about, upon those key themes of the pressure to perform and it gives you great insight of how she ended up where she was. So she says of the confession, I do this because I consider it my duty, a sacred thing, a holy mission to expose it, spiritualism. I want to see the day when it is entirely done away with. After I expose it I hope spiritualism will be given a death blow. I was the first in the field and I have the right to expose it. My sister Katie and I were very young when this horrible deception began. I was only eight, just a year and a half older than she. We were mischievous children and sought merely to terrify our dear mother who was a very good woman and very easily frightened. When we went to bed at night, we used to tie an apple to a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor, or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. Mother listened to this for a time. She would not understand it and did not suspect us of being capable of a trick because we were so young. And that was the way we began, first as a mere trick to frighten mother, and then when so many people came to see us children, we were ourselves frightened and for self-preservation, forced to keep it up. No one suspected of us any trick because we were such young children. We were led on by my sister purposely and by my mother unintentionally. We often heard her say, the mother, is this a disembodied spirit that has taken possession of my dear children? That encouraged our fun and we went on. All the neighbours thought there was something and they wanted to find out what it was. They were convinced that someone had been murdered in our house. They asked the spirits through us about it, and we would rap one for the spirit answer yes. Mrs Underhill, my eldest sister, took Katie and me to Rochester. There it was that we discovered a new way of making the wraps. My sister Katie was the first to observe that by swishing her fingers she could produce a certain noise with her knuckles and joints, and that same effect could be made with the toes.' finding that we could make raps with our feet, first one foot and then both, we practised until we could do this easily when the room was dark. In Rochester, Mrs Underhill, their older sister, gave exhibitions of us. We had crowds coming to see us and she made us as much as $100 to $150 per night. She pocketed this. Parties came in from all parts to see us. Many, as soon as they heard a little rap, were convinced. To all questions, we answered by raps, We knew when to rap yes or no according to certain signs which Mrs Underhill gave us during the seance. I am now very poor. I intend, however, to expose spiritualism because I think it is my sacred duty. If I cannot do it, who can? I, who have been at the beginning of it, at least I hope to reduce the ranks of the eight million spiritualists in the country. I go into it as a holy war. I am waiting anxiously and fearlessly for the moment when I can show the world, by personal demonstration, that all spiritualism is a fraud and a deception. It's a branch of Le Gerdemain, but it has to be closely studied to gain perfection. None but a child at an early age would have ever attained the proficiency and wrought such widespread evil as I have. I trust this statement coming solemnly from me, the first and most successful in this deception, will break the rapid growth of spiritualism and prove that it was all a fraud, hypocrisy and delusion. Signed, Margaret Fox Kane.
1: Gosh, that's quite telling, isn't
0: it? It's incredible. I mean, Houdini goes on to say she then recanted that confession and she did continue as a medium. Uh, doing seances and paid work
1: um, but didn't she recount that after she had found herself in money difficulties
0: yeah 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 basically yeah basically he's saying she did go back to being a medium either that or she would starve um, but it did make me think of uh, the jeff case and that pressure to perform, and I, I, I just, I just had a, a real sense of, I don't know, kind of empathy with Margaret Fox Kane, that you know from a young age they this thing started off as a trick, as a, as a bit of fun, and you know at a young age suddenly mushroomed out of control, and you know that she was, as she said, we were fearful that if we stopped there'd be some negative consequences let alone that their older sister was making a good living off them as well I just thought it was a a sad telling story basically
1: yeah absolutely
0: but it, it did make me think of something again that Christopher said in the Jeff interview that you know probably even people who would have would be regarded as a genuine gift may at times have had to use some form of deception to kind of keep their income or you know their livelihood and, st- and as it says here to stop themselves from starving that they maybe had to use some tricks and techniques and I think what's interesting in Houdini's approach in the book it seems to be if somebody has committed a trick, that means they're all completely a fraud. He doesn't seem to acknowledge that there may be some middle ground. But I thought what interesting about that story is, you know, A, her progression and her journey, and B, that it was, they were the first ones who started to make money and do performances out of this stuff. And I think people then jumped off the back of their success, um, So another one that Houdini talks about, uh, not sisters this time, but brothers, the Davenport brothers, again from the New York area, Um, and they began their work, let's say, in around the 1850s, um, where the Fox sisters had a simple trick of the cliques using their, their feet and hands the one, you know, one for yes, two for no, whatever, the one we kind of classically know now. The Davenport brothers brought a bit more of the performance, I guess, to spiritualism. So they would put on this show where they had a large cabinet or box with two chairs at either side. Um, A number of musical instruments and things would be laid in the cabinet. They would be tied up together so they couldn't move. And there was space in the middle of a cabinet for a kind of independent witness to sit inside. And then the cabinet doors would be closed so everybody inside the cabinet was in complete darkness. And the witness in the middle would then report and the audience would hear the instruments being played things being thrown around things would come flying out of the cabinet the witness sitting in the middle would feel kind of hands touching them and various weird phenomena and things fluorescent things floating around um so Houdini decided to or ended up befriending one of the brothers the Davenport brothers in later life, a guy called Ira Davenport, uh, who confessed to Houdini that their seances were a performance and that the brothers, with uh, a mixture of a carefully developed knot, which they developed themselves, um, and a kind of level of dexterity, I guess, would would be able to free themselves from the binds once they were in the box and make things happen, and were clever enough to return themselves to the bound position before the cabinet was opened. There's an interesting bit actually where um, Ira Davenport actually teaches Houdini how to do the knot, and you can imagine that, can't you, a kind of a magician of an escapologist of Houdini's kind of sitting there and working out how to do it. And Houdini says he's perfected it and knows how or knew how to do it, which I think is quite amazing. But I think what's interesting about the Davenport brothers is that they never claimed that they had any spiritual powers. Everybody else claimed that for them, a bit like we were talking about.
1: Art. Oh, so they, they were just having a show?
0: They would They just put together a show. Now they didn't deny it but everybody assumed they had paranormal powers um including a number of paranormal investigators and spiritualists who'd come and seen their show the brothers didn't have any kind of paranormal ability but once that kind of train started flowing and everybody and these famous spiritualists and paranormal investigators said they have general paranormal powers they didn't deny it they just didn't comment on it um and ira davenport which i think is a great quote famously said to houdini strange how people imagine things in the dark
1: (laughs) oh that is a good quote
0: because he ira would say to houdini sometimes people would come out that cabinet claiming things had happened which the brothers had never done
1: right right
0: so I guess those two the uh, Fox sisters uh, and the Davenport brothers are kind of an example of that kind of performance spiritualism you know paying crowds coming to see I mean they did give smaller performances but they were basically you know the paranormal as entertainment I think the next person I want to talk about is somebody who was very famous and prolific. So I'm going to talk about someone who kind of, in some ways, is responsible for, I guess, a lot of the cliched visions that we see as the classic seance. And it's a guy called Daniel Douglas Home. So he kind of rose to fame in, again, the early 1850s and he became one of the most famous spiritualists and he became basically a darling of the Victorian aristocracy. That was his kind of key thing. So unlike the uh, the Fox sisters and the Davenport brothers, he would perform to smaller groups so it is, it is those classic seances that you would imagine in the movies where, you know, people with, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm, in my mind I'm thinking of a tambourine on the table that suddenly starts levitating and kind of playing or candles blowing out or a medium being possessed by a spirit and talking in spirit voices. That was Holmes basically stock and trade. Um, And he seemed to make his money by receiving gifts from the people he held seances with. Uh, And interestingly, he would often get possessed by a spirit who would then recommend to the hosts of the seance that they should donate money or gifts to (laughs) home himself. (laughs) How
1: convenient.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And there is quite a... a, a Houdini uh, recants say. Incident where a poet, famous poet of the day, attended one of these seances who was a skeptic but whose wife had become a believer. So Houdini writes On one occasion, Robert Browning, the poet, attended one of Holmes' seances. He had become somewhat alarmed by his wife's interest in spiritualism. And when a face was materialized and said to be of a son who had died in infancy, Browning seized the supposed materialized head and discovered it to be the bare foot of Mr Holmes. Incidentally, Browning had never lost an infant son. Houdini also writes of Holmes, "'He seems to have had little difficulty in meeting royalty and nobility on terms of intimacy, even numbering among his patrons, the Emperor and Empress of France, as well as the Tsar of Russia. From this clientele he received many valuable gifts.'" But he had a bit of a kind of sticky end in the end because he held seances and befriended a very wealthy woman who was in her 70s who, through, he said, being possessed by a spirit, convinced this woman to hand over the deeds of her house to him. Obviously, her family and friends were shocked by this and convinced her that she should go back to him and say no, I want I want the deeds to my, to my house back, mm. of which Holmes refused, and it ended up in court. So he was he in the end had to give her back her money and the deeds to her house, uh, as the judge uh, declared he'd obtained them through fraud. So I think he I don't know if 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 this guy. Holmes was the first to do those kind of more small, intimate seances with all the tricks and trades that you would uh, associate with a kind of clichéd, I don't know, TV adaptation of what Victorian seance would be or whether he was one of many of the time. But, you know, he certainly would use these smaller gatherings. I mean, the book does cover a number of topics including explaining how things like which were big at the time um spirit photos where people would go and have photography sessions and then a you know departed relative would appear slate writing he talks about this uh, how um uh, mediums would create ectoplasm how they would use private investigators and bribe people to get information on people that they were holding seances for so they could kind of create this possession. There was a particularly distressing story in the book uh, about a medium who bribed an undertaker in order to replace a lady's dead husband with an actor in a coffin... So, when this grieving widow came to view her husband the the what she thought was the corpse in the coffin basically sat up and told her that she should give all of her money to the medium
1: oh my god
0: so it kind of it it shows how this kind of thing had become massive, and it again it it took me back to my wrestling analogy that there was and and a bit that Christopher said, that a lot of these people came from working-class backgrounds and suddenly you've got this chance of, A, I think in Victorian times, mixing with people that the working classes just didn't get a chance to mix with, who had lots of money and power and, you know. So all the examples Houdini claims in the book are all frauds whether it is more of a balanced tale on the wider kind of spiritual community of a mixture of, you know, people who are not so famous being genuine mediums who are helping people. I know from my family, there was somebody in my family who I never met because I was too young, but, uh, you know, a kind of great-great-aunt or grandmother, who was uh, a medium who everybody in the family said didn't accept money and genuinely helped people. So I know her motivations, according to my family, were not that of kind of fraudulently obtaining money from people. So I don't think I'm saying because of this book it shows that all mediums are frauds. But it does say, I think it's a good warning for if you are a sceptic or a believer or like us somewhere in the middle. I think it's a really interesting book to read to kind of give you those those kind of insights into how people can be uh, you know manipulated, I think especially probably in the world of social media i 'm sure this goes on quite a lot
1: right right but w- with all of these things there 's always a follow the money, and it feels like what Houdini was motivated by was to stop being, stop people being taken advantage of in return for their money and maybe that's the thing that um conan doyle couldn't quite come to terms with maybe because he although he had started out poor and and had sold his original to sherlock stories for only 25 pounds which even wow uh back back in those times was a very small amount of money and he was struggling maybe because he didn't seem to be motivated by um possessions and wealth he just wanted the the ability to live really that's what comes across yeah maybe he didn't understand that people would lie to such an extent and create sort of these fairground attractions if you like which would become money spinners yeah and so that's why he was he was almost more willing to accept people for what they said it was even if um like so it's the the famously houdini tried to convince conan doyle from his spiritualist beliefs by showing him what appeared to be a trick that was impossible, but he then explained to Conan Doyle how he'd done it and said, no, this is just a trick and this is how I do it. Conan Doyle wouldn't believe it. He thought that he was almost covering up for some sort of supernatural... powers (laughs)
0: so it was like the ultimate misdirection you're misdirecting me by telling me it's a trick whereas right you have paranormal powers
1: yeah yeah and and then when you look at um so one of the things that I find staggering about Conan Doyle um and I think it's only staggering with hindsight is um his sort of endorsement of the Cottingley fairies yeah that was something that revolved around two young girls really even though the eldest you know was 16 and was arguably nearly an adult back in those times you probably weren't really an adult until you were 21 so I think probably what it feels like what was coloring his perception and the reason why he was such an advocate uh, for their stories was because he couldn't see a motivation for them doing it he didn't understand that just doing it for the trickster thing would be would be fun for the girls and it it
0: kind of takes you back to the fox sisters really right yeah they're saying it was like nobody would believe that it wasn't the spirits because nobody could believe that two young girls would perform that kind of trickery
1: yeah Exactly, exactly. And I think in modern day, we sort of see this with um, Darren Brown. He did his uh, famous seance show where there was a bunch of people who knew that they were with Darren Brown, they knew that they were being filmed, yeah. and yet still were scared by what was happening on the Ouija board, even though. It was explained to them that this was a trick. This was a uh, a piece of misdirection. This was uh, something that was made for television by the the mentalist Theron Brown. They didn't. They still saw the paranormal in it, and so I suppose maybe um, Conan Doyle and all of the people that um, were taken in by these big show people there's probably something in the human psyche that says if it appears to be impossible then it probably is impossible but then like as we have learned none of this explains like nikki's story and the other things that we have it's found yeah. like like your relative where people are told inexplicable things and uh, there are there are Appear to be powers at work which are not easily um, given you know, a, a good motivation or explanation for, and yet there is no money trail.
0: Well, it's interesting you were talking about Conan Doyle and, you know, his motivations and his attitudes towards Houdini because I think for the, the final section what I want to talk about is there's an amazing section in the book where it's basically lots of letters and correspondence between Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle and it touches upon some of the themes that you were just talking about so I'll just crack straight into it I think Houdini says spiritualism has claimed among its followers numbers of brilliant minds scientists philosophers professionals and authors Whether these great minds have been misdirected, whether they have followed the subject because they were convinced fully of its truth, or whether they have been successfully hoodwinked by some fraudulent medium are matters of conjecture and opinion. Nevertheless, they have been the means of bringing into the ranks of spiritualism numbers of those who allow themselves to be led by minds greater and more powerful than their own. Such one is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, He says, the friendship of Sir Arthur and myself dates back to the time when I was playing the Brighton Hippodrome in England. We had been corresponding and discussed through the medium of the mail questions regarding spiritualism. He invited Mrs Houdini and myself to the Doyle home in Crowborough, England. And in that way, an acquaintanceship was began, which has continued ever since. Honest friendship is one of life's most precious treasures, and I pride myself in thinking that we have held that treasure sacred in every respect. In every respect. <clears throat> I mean, there's some really touching letters and telegrams where Sir Arthur Conan Dor tries to um, get Houdini to kind of quit doing these incredible stunts. There's a telegram, there's a great one. My dear Houdini, so this was after the death of someone called the Human Fly, who was a performer who would scale buildings without any kind of ropes or whatever, and who'd fallen to his death off a New York skyscraper. My dear Houdini, for goodness sake, take care of those dangerous stunts of yours. You've done enough of them. I speak because I've just read of the death of the Human Fly. Is it worth it? Question mark. Yours very sincerely, signed A. Conan Doyle. Hmm which I I love that letter. But there's also a great bit of correspondence of, in his attempts, kind of what you're saying of, you know, when Houdini showed him the trick and Conan Doyle just wouldn't accept that it was a trick, that it, it was paranormal. In his attempt to convince Houdini of the existence of the paranormal and spiritualism, he invited Houdini and his wife to a séance at his home. Uh, So it was Houdini, his wife, I think there were some other people there, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and his wife Lady Doyle. Now Lady Doyle claimed to be a medium and that she could channel spirits. Um, And in this séance, Lady Doyle became possessed by a spirit and wrote a letter. She said she'd become possessed by Houdini's mother. And as we discussed earlier houdini's mother was a key the death of his mother was a key talking point or driving point for houdini to investigate this stuff um and so she wrote this letter which she said had come through the hands of houdini's mother and she also asked houdini to write down a name of someone that she thought she was also getting information from and he wrote down the name powell which we'll come on to in a minute. Um, Houdini then was upset by this seance because it did involve his mother and he he was quite upset and, I guess, discombobulated by the whole thing and talked about it or wrote an article about it in a newspaper uh, in the New York Sun. And there became this kind of bizarre exchange between Houdini and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in a series of letters. And it starts with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle my, my dear Houdini, they sent me the New York Sun with your article and no doubt wanted me to answer it, but I have no fancy for sparring with a friend in public, so I took no notice. But nonetheless, I felt rather sore about it. You have all the right in the world to hold your own opinion, but when you say that you have no evidence of survival, i.e. survival on the other side, mm. you say what I cannot reconcile and what I saw with my own eyes. I know by many examples the purity of my wife's mediumship and I saw what you got and the effect it had upon you at the time you know also you yourself at once wrote down with your own hand the name of Powell the one man who might be expected to communicate with you unless you were joking when you said you did not know of this Powell's death then surely that was evidential since the idea that out of all your friends you had chance to write the name of one who exactly corresponded would surely be too wonderful a coincidence. However, I don't propose to discuss this subject any more with you, for I consider that you've had your proofs and that the responsibility of accepting or rejecting it is with you, as it is the very real lasting responsibility. However, I have it at last, for I've done my best to give you the truth. Meanwhile, there are lots of other subjects on which we can all meet in friendship and friendly converse. Yours sincerely, Arthur Conan Doyle. So Houdini Hmm. responds immediately to this letter. And he says, "'My dear Sir Arthur, "'received your letter regarding my article in the New York Sun. "'You write that you are very sore. "'I trust that's not with me, "'because you, having been truthful and manly all your life, "'naturally must admire the same traits in other human beings.' I know you are an honourable and sincere and I think I owe you an explanation regarding the letter I received through the hands of Lady Doyle. I was heartily in accord and sympathy at the séance but the letter was written entirely in English and my sainted mother could not read, write or speak the English language. I do not care to discuss it at the time because of my emotions in trying to sense the presence of my mother if there was such a thing possible. To keep me quiet until time passed, and I I, so I would keep quiet until time passed and can give it the proper deduction regarding my having written the name Powell Frederick Eugene Powell is a very dear friend of mine he had just passed through two serious operations furthermore Mrs Powell had a paralytic stroke at the time I was having some business dealings with him which entailed a great deal of correspondence therefore naturally his name was uppermost by most in my mind and I cannot make myself believe that my hand was guided by your friend. It was just a coincidence. I trust my clearing up of the seance from my point of view is satisfactory and that you do not harbour any ill feelings, because I hold both Lady Doyle and yourself in the highest esteem. I know you treat this as a religion, but personally I cannot do so, for up to the present time I have never seen or heard anything that could convert me trusting you will accept my letter in the same honest good faith and feeling as it has been written, with best wishes to Lady Doyle, yourself and the family, in which Mrs Houdini joins. Sincerely yours, Houdini. Hmm. I just find that exchange fascinating.
1: Yeah, and it's so heartfelt as well. Yeah.
0: And... uh, it made me think there's something about that kind of written letter and way of communicating in that time where you don't pick up a phone or send a text, mm. you know, that Houdini has written this article which has upset Conan Doyle and even in there, from both of them, the, what's the word, the chastising of each other there's still you can feel the friendship and respect coming through yeah yeah which i think is incredible
1: yeah well it it feels it's almost like um uh well it's a conversation between a theist and an atheist really yeah isn't it? exactly exactly um and neither of them can see the other person's <clears throat> point of view but maybe what what we're saying is that it's a bit more nuanced than that. Like the, I suppose the modern day Houdini might be James Randi, who famously offered the huge cash prize for anybody who could um, prove psychic uh, or paranormal abilities in a lab condition. And that prize Uh, though it's offered to this day, has been um, untaken. And there's two ways of looking at it. One is that uh, nobody uh, can do it. Or the other way of looking at it is that uh, the people who can do it are not motivated by by that cash prize and don't wish to put their heads above the parapet.
0: Well, I think there's a third way as well. You know, and going back to Christopher and Jeff again and going back to Ruth Roper Wild. I just keep thinking about her 50 times going to a haunted place and not seeing anything and then you'll get Mm. something. It's like maybe this stuff just does happen rarely Mm. Mm. and that some people are more in tune with it than others, but it still happens rarely. Yeah. Although then I just keep scratching my head around remote viewing, and I just keep thinking if remote viewing had ex- existed in this time and we could have sit down with Houdini, I don't know, get Paul H. Smith or Daz Smith and Houdini in the same room and say, mm. go on then, explain that. You know what I mean? Mm. What, what would happen then? Mm.
1: Mm. Well, there's a, there's a very interesting sort of... Um, well, to use that word again, potential denouement of the story. Uh, so, about a year ago, I read the book uh, "An Atheist in Heaven" by Paul David's, and it is the story of a a, a Hollywood man, a, a mogul in the um, the sci-fi genre. Who is called, called Forrest Ackerman, and uh, Paul David's is a long-time creative collaborator with him. And peculiar things happen to Paul, which he uh, he talks about in this book. And I'm not going to go into the book now because, like, you need to read it for yourself. But there's a there's a moment within the book where Houdini comes up, and it it comes up in a Uh, a very scientific and uh, rigorously controlled area where um, it is postulated that Houdini is working from beyond the grave to uh, prove that there is life after death and it's it's a really powerful and strange part of the book and I can't offer anything other than yeah you just need to read that bit but there's a potential that everything that Houdini thought was bunkum he has since learnt isn't bunkum and he's trying to prove it so I
0: that's amazing and it kind of ties in with the narrative that we talked about right at the start with Houdini and his friends sitting down and having this kind of pact between them That if there is any way they could come back and communicate with themselves from the other side, whoever dies first, I think they said, when they all sat down and met, that they would do everything in their power to come back and tell the others that, yes, there is a spirit world and these things exist. It does tie in with that narrative. It's an intriguing thought, though, isn't it? That (laughs) After all this debunking and... Firm belief. Uh that it's all rubbish. That the irony if Houdini did get to the other side and <laughs> realize that he was wrong and tried to come back and convince everyone is that it is a lovely tantalizing
1: thought. It is. It is. So I, I think probably the the way that we should continue this conversation is to speak to what you might call um a an an average psychic, so somebody who isn't a Derek Akora. They're not yeah. on television. Um, they don't drive a Maserati as Derek Akora did, right, um, which yeah. obviously raises concerns. Um, and ask them about their experiences and maybe get their point of view on this. So I'm working on that particular lead at the moment, and I think uh, that
0: would be brilliant because I think. I think reading this book, there is a difference in my mind. I'm not sure. I don't know for sure. But I think there should be a difference between these examples of people who are making, at that time, big money, big political associations, relationships, and uh, I don't know how to describe them, your grassroots mediums, maybe that's the way of describing it. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And like like you say, there are people in your family. I know of friends of our family who um, wouldn't openly claim to have these skills, but um, if you catch them at the right moment, they can do things which appear to be a little bit odd, but they would never ever, you know, try and win a million pounds off James Randi or anything like that. No. Uh, And then what we were saying, what you were saying there about um, Paul H. Smith and Daz Smith and um, those whole, that whole remote viewing, there's the, what they talk about a lot is noise versus signal. Yeah. And I sort of think that as soon as you put money into it and a burden of proof you add noise yeah yeah exactly that's interesting that is interesting
0: because I think the other thing that struck me is at the start of the book Houdini does go to great pains to say he's come at this from a agnostic point of view Mm. but it even from the start, it doesn't really read that way. And I can't work out if that's because over the course of his investigations, he's become jaded with it or whether he always had a kind of bias of what he was going to achieve. And I keep going back to those three motivations in my head that he could see some of the tricks that he used in his magic and illusionist shows being used by these people and that upset him you know this desire to kind of communicate with his mother and I think it was a kind of internal battle that he desperately wanted this thing to happen but thought it's ridiculous and you could see the struggle within him Mm. and the fact that he had done which he plays down I think in the book from what I've heard and you know that he said he kind of alludes in the book that he's incorporated the tricks of uh mediums and spiritualists in his work, but it's my understanding that he did pose as a spiritualist or a medium in his early part of his career. So I think there was a, a degree of guilt about that as well. Mm, yeah. So I think it's 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 fascinating though, whether you are a believer in mediumship and the spirit spiritualism, a complete skeptic or a bit like me and Ben, somewhere in the middle, where we just kind of scratch our heads about it. This book by Harry Houdini, a magician among the spirits, is well worth a read. You know, because it's funny because I noticed I've noticed online we you know we get we get great response on Facebook, but I've noticed a few posts being. Kind of tagged onto the com- comments of our that we put out with uh, on Facebook, especially when we have got a new episode. You know, I don't know, I can't remember the name of it, but there's one saying, Oh, I've my love life has been completely cured by this amazing doctor who can cast spells and get your lover back, you know, and then kind of contact details. And I just keep having to go, Please, this is nothing to do with us, you know. I think I said the other day, go and join t- Tinder tinder it'll be a lot cheaper than getting in contact with this guy you know what i mean it's Mm, like mm. and it you know it's out there and what would be a shame and it'll be great when we can talk to like we said a grassroots medium how they feel about that that even now that there was this period of time where people were fraudulently making money out of this stuff and it's still going on today how that must feel to somebody who has or at least believes they have a genuine ability.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, a good way to close this conversation down, um, I've just been uh, away for a week and I had a couple of long car journeys and one of the podcasts I listened to was Adam Buxton speaking to Robbie Williams. Oh, I love Adam and Buxton. Uh, yes, absolutely, and and I'm a big fan of Robbie Williams. Not necessarily for his music, but because I think he's um, an interesting person, and I really enjoyed the John Ronson um, documentary that he did for uh, BBC Four, uh, BBC Radio Four, on UFOs. But when Adam questioned him about you know the esoteric things that he's interested in, um. Robbie said oh well I'm one of those people I don't believe in everything but I don't disbelieve in everything everything I read I go yeah sure it's possible and I think that is possibly the best way to approach this stuff and I think what we've discovered here is Conan Doyle was a was a a swing one way and Houdini was a swing the other and perhaps the truth lies somewhere in the middle of the needle.
0: I think, I think you're right. I'd quite like to give Houdini the last word on this episode rather than Robbie Williams. It's a toss-up. <laughs> 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 Much as I'd like to. So I'm just going to... I think we'll end with, with, with... I guess it's a bit of a summary of Houdini's conclusion at the end of his book, A Magician Among the Spirits. It has been my desire in this book to convey to the reader my views regarding spiritualism, which are a result of study and investigation, the startling feature of which has been the utter inability of the average human being to describe accurately anything he or she has witnessed. Many sitters, devoid of the sense of accurate observation, prefer to garnish and embellish their stories with the fruits of their fertile imagination, adding a choice bit every time the incident is reported and eventually, by a trick of the brain, really believing what they say. It is evident, therefore, that a clever misguidance, an apt misdirection of attention, a medium can accomplish seemingly wonders. The sitter becomes positively self-deluded and actually thinks he has seen weird phantoms or has heard the voice of a beloved one. To my knowledge, I have never been baffled in the least by what I have seen at a séance. Everything I have seen has been merely a form of mystification. The secret of all such performances is to catch the mind off guard, and at that moment, after it has been surprised, to follow it up with something else that carries the intelligence along with the performer, even against the spectator's will when it is possible to do this with a highly developed mind, like Mr Keller's, once trained in magic mysteries, or when scientific men of the intelligence of Sir Oliver Lodge, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and William Crook and William T. Stead can be made to believe, by such means, how much easier it must be in the case of ordinary human beings.
1: Wow, those are great words. Otherwise,
0: a good quote to end on. Mm. And on that note... um, well we will definitely as Ben said right at the start of this I, I think this is a really interesting topic for us this this world of paranormal investigators is fascinating me and we will return to it um, maybe we'll focus on somebody who's more of a believer next time but I, I totally enjoyed that book and and kind of reading Houdini's words even though it's quite a long book and his writing style's not that easy to read there's packed full of details, so I definitely recommend it.
1: Sounds great. I'm gonna pick it up.
0: Cool. Excellent. Well, we'll be back with uh, more quantum mechanicsness next time.
1: Like, subscribe review. See you next like, time. Like
0: subscribe review. See ya. you the quantum mechanics.